0: Welcome everybody to episode 43 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Dawson, and I'm here with Bill Rogio once again. Bill, hello everyone. And the two of us are joined again this week. We are pleased to say to you guys to announce by uh, Edmund Fitton Brown. He's a coordinator for the UN Security Council's analytical support and sanctions monitoring team. They oversee uh, some of the, the UN sanctions regime when it comes to Al Qaeda and ISIS and affiliated groups, and. Edmund Fitton-Brown, his team regularly put out reports on these groups that we are avid consumers of. As you guys know, we write about these reports, we comment on them, and we're always looking to see what the UN has detected out there uh, because you know, you're know you dealing with groups that are clandestine that oftentimes try and hide the details of their operations. And so there's always interesting little nuggets in these reports that are put out by the the uh, Edmund and his team. Edmund, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much, Tom. Bill, great to see you both again. Thanks for coming back
2: on, Edmund.
0: So I guess we're going to – we did a previous podcast with you, Edmund, and I think we're just going to jump right into it, if so that's all right with you, instead of doing a long sort of uh, thing. We we talked about your biography on the last episode that you came on, and let's just get right into the nerdy details, which is what we do here. Um, you know – you know,
1: Get after it, as I think sometimes someone says.
0: Yeah. So let's let's start with the, the, the an interesting sort of – I was just going to start by getting your comments on this. So we have a – Relatively new leader of ISIS. Of course, he's been the leader of ISIS now for quite some time. We knew him as Haji Abdullah. There's various different aliases that are given for him. Um, it's interesting to juxtapose him and his leadership with Ayman al-Zawahiri. There have been, you know, differing reports on both of them over the years. Um, you know, both are, I would say, quite curiously silent at the moment, at least publicly. They're neither one of them are releasing any kind of statements. Um, and I was wondering if you maybe have a little bit of a comment on what you and your team found when it comes to, first, the ISIS leader and his his sort of leadership and what's changed or hasn't changed since Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's days. And then maybe comment a little bit on the rumors that the Egyptian doctor, doc, uh, Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, had passed away. We, uh, of course, have our own thoughts on that, but go ahead. Yeah,
1: thanks, Tom. We, I mean, we cover, obviously cover both of them in the report. You would never, never go through a lot of these reports without uh, referring to the uh, top leadership of both groups. Um, in the case of, um, uh, I'll, I'll call him Amar al That's that's the name that we usually use. But as you say, uh, Hadji Abdullah is, uh, is, is is another name people are using. Um, and uh, he, he is, he's been in the job now for just over a year. Um, I think there's a sense that, there's a pretty strong sense of continuity uh, from his predecessor, from uh, Bakr al-Baghdadi, and of course that's not a surprise in a way, because he was already uh, Baghdadi's sort of de facto, um, before Baghdadi was killed, so uh, we anticipated that there wouldn't be a significant strategic change, and that the, the group would really just continue to 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 respond to the external pressures that it faces. I think it's difficult, you know, you're, to some degree, ISIL is still in the sort of survival mode, you know, having been militarily recently and facing a lot of counter-terrorism pressure. Um, You made the point about him being silent. Um, Of course, Baghdadi also went through periods when he was quiet as well. Sure. Um, But it is interesting to have a situation where uh, Al Mala has now been um, has now been uh, head of the group for a year and a quarter, approximately. Um, and as far as.
0: Yeah, no public statements, right? He hasn't he come out and had a sort of big "ta-da, Here I am. He hasn't done that.
1: Yeah, he's relying on Abu Hamza, the spokesperson who's made four separate broadcasts uh, during this period. And it's uh, it's I think it's a risky strategy because. It, it doesn't have the same resonance that it does if the uh, if the if the boss speaks and um, you know, certainly the last time that Abu Hamza spoke in October um, it was was a you know it, it wasn't it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't an, an incompetent message but it wasn't a very inspiring message either and it was it sounded frustrated as well frustrated with the uh, you know the fact that there was too much too, much, too many words too little too little action um, and and quite a few of the people that we talk to are saying that you know, that this is a difficult line for al-Mawla to tread because you know, on the one hand, he needs to stay safe, he doesn't wanna get killed and communicating is a risk. But um, there is a danger that if this goes on for too much longer and with ISIL sort of slightly smelling of defeat because of the number of setbacks that they have suffered, um, that, that there, there's a risk that people start to lose interest in the ISIL message Um, And and I want to want to do something to uh, to get themselves back in the headlines because they haven't been very much in the headlines uh, recently. So that's 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 Al Mola. You know, it'd be interesting to see whether he changes course on this. You remember that very interesting um, uh, declassification of some of the interrogation uh, records with uh, Al Mola when he when he was when he was uh, when he was in U.S. detention some years ago. And um, that, that gave us a little bit of an insight into his personality. as Somebody who's quite, you know, quite keen on his own interests. Um, maybe safety being the most important thing for him. I don't know. It's it's hard. It's hard to say. But this is going to be a difficult calculation for him to make. But sooner or later, he's going to have to, he's going to have to figure out how to, you know, what what is his long term on this. And then you mentioned Zawahiri. Um Actually,
0: can I give you a follow up question, Amala, before we move on to Zawahiri? Here's a quick follow quick follow up. Um, and there's a distinction we always make, too. Just because he's silent publicly doesn't mean he's silent privately. Um, there's obviously one of the things in dealing with these organizations is there's a large clandestine component. And we oftentimes don't see what their internal communications are. We don't know you know, how frequently senior leadership is communicating amongst themselves or with the so-called affiliates, affiliates or provinces in the case of, of ISIS. Um, I was just curious if you had any sort of insight into that because you, you do see some, as the report indicates that you guys released, is strategic continuity there which does suggest that there is some level of ongoing management going from you know sort of the isis senior leadership you know on down
1: oh absolutely and it's a very good point um i I think yes on the one hand you have sort of visible communications you know things that are released to the public domain uh audios or videos as most recently with Baghdadi, of course and abu hamza with his audios um that's sort of visible stuff and it reaches the wider membership. You know, I mean that's that, that's going to reach the kind of guys who who were doing the pledges of allegiance when uh, when um Amaral Mola first took over. Um those people they don't know who he is. They don't even know that he's Amaral Mola, Um but what they're you know what they're getting the communication that this is the new boss and this is his nom de guerre and um and then they, they you know they give the pledge of allegiance. That, that's a big part of the sort of the the pageantry and the propaganda, and ISIL has always regarded propaganda as a core function, it's an interesting one. That when they were when they were folding down some of their non-core functions just to survive the military onslaught, uh, one of the ones that they never contemplated closing down was their was their uh, propaganda capability. They know that that's life and death for them. Um, whereas they, as you know, they closed down their external operations capability as. Being a luxury that they couldn't afford at that time, so uh, that's an interesting point about the propaganda, and and that's the issue. It's, it's it, the communication may well be happening uh, on a more secret level and to uh, people who are in positions of uh, authority and delegated authority within the group. That's not what we see publicly, and that's that risk of the loss of interest, the risk that uh, ISIL starts to feel like yesterday's news. That's much more on the sort of, on the surface uh what may you refer to um the privileged communications um we understand that al-mola is very definitely in charge you know he is he is running the organization and it, it's you know it's 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 a it's an organization with a fairly strong hierarchy and he's the boss um now one of the things we draw attention to in the report is the importance in all of this general directorate of provinces um and the general director of provinces is a kind of a, a, a Linking up function with the global network. Um, and of course, uh, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the at the top level, that plug directly into Almol and you know, to the other uh, top of ISIL. Um And then uh, the question arises how effective are these uh, sensitive communications? I have a sense with that that um, they are partially effective. But that it varies according to the pressure that they're under, and this is why I think this uh, any sort of notion of taking a foot off the gas on ISIL is such a it would be such a mistake, because ISIL is struggling, but I think it's struggling because it's under so much pressure. If you draw the conclusion that ISIL is you know sort of um, losing its way and is no longer the threat that it used to be, uh, and you then uh, you then take you then sort of uh, release that pressure. Um, there's an obvious risk that goes with that. So when we look at the sort of, you know, communications that go back and forth between uh, Somalia and DRC, Somalia and, uh, and Mozambique in the one case, or between Lake Chad Basin and uh, the Sahel, in the case of West, the West Africa sort of um, you know, regional uh, network, um, then that will depend so much on what the situ- what the circumstances are that they're having to deal with. And we see some areas where those communications seem to be working very well and to be frequent and very effective. And then we see other cases where maybe they're only partial. I mean, it's an interesting case in South Asia where you, you know, you have a you have a regional uh, nexus between uh, Afghanistan and South Asia all the way, but certainly as far as Bangladesh, possibly beyond. Um, and but the question is, how effective is that? How how well does it actually work? Um, and uh, and and I think I think. That in you know in some cases this is a this is a structure, that's still being fleshed out, and it's more functional in some regions than it is than it is in others.
0: That makes sense, and you know what you just described is, um, and this is part of what we've debated or discussed in the counterterrorism community for so long is that that's very similar to the way al-Qaeda was originally structured and remains structured to this day. Obviously, there's been evolution, there's been change, there are disruptions in communications, there are all sorts of problems and setbacks. But that sort of regional hierarchy that um, with this, you know, across you know, the different al-Qaeda branches and with the al-Qaeda senior leadership, it's something that, you know, quite frankly, a lot of people got wrong back in the days when it came to al-Qaeda. And that's why I asked you about ISIS, because... We don't want to make the same mistake in assumptions about ISIS that were made about Al-Qaeda, where there was, you know, this assumption for a lot of t- long time was that basically Osama bin Laden, for example, was out of the game. Lo and behold, we get the files recovered in Abbottabad, and it's exactly the opposite. You know, he's very much in the game, very much, you know, managing, in some sources, we even describe it as micromanaging across this global network. Um, so that's, that's why I asked about the ISIS stuff. And when it comes to Haji Abdullah or Amala, however, wherever, Noam guerre we want to use for him. Uh, you know, he, you know, I, I think that just because we haven't heard from him publicly, I don't want people to assume that that means he's out, out of the game or not doing anything privately or behind the scenes, he and his staff. And I think that, I think what you said, it makes a lot of sense along those lines. So let's get to the, let's get to the not so good doctor, uh, Iman al-Zawahiri, the, the elderly Egyptian leader of Al Qaeda. I've been rooting uh, quite, in all full disclosure, I've been rooting for COVID nineteen in this one case. Um, you know, for quite some time, uh, people know that. Uh, you know, there were some rumors late last year, and they were only rumors that he did succumb to some sort of health conditions. We we don't find any evidence for that, but and it seems like in your report, you guys haven't found any evidence to confirm that either. So I was curious if you could weigh in, maybe a little bit on what you we, what you think we know about Ayman al Zawahiri and his current status.
1: Yeah, no, that's what uh, you say is absolutely bang on, Tom. Um, from our point of view, his mortality is an issue anyway. It was an issue even before the rumours in October. But he's in, he's elderly. He's in poor health, um, and you know, there's there's rumour that he had uh, something to heart related, something asthma related, something kidney related. We heard these different uh, things. Nobody was suggesting that he'd been killed in some kind of kinetic strike. It was all, it was all the suggestion. That he might have died of ill health, um, but you're right. Uh, despite our best efforts, we have had zero confirmation of it. We have to assume that he's still alive. It is interesting that he's uh, interesting that he's not. You know, that he's not. He's not. There's no present uh, activity. There's no no current. Um, uh, you know, sort of uh, visibility. And that, what that, what could that mean? I mean, it could mean many things. Uh, it could mean. You know, of course, it could have been consistent with his demise if that were, if that if that were the case. Could be consistent with him uh, having to take care about his health. You mentioned COVID. One of the things that we also were aware of um, that uh, that if you actually look at uh, which uh, which of our subjects of interest most vulnerable in the context of a global pandemic, well, Zawari stands out as being one of the most vulnerable, doesn't he? Um, and so, uh, so you know, we were aware of that as well. Maybe that's one reason for him to be very careful. Uh, or maybe it's other things, you know. Maybe it's to do, maybe it's to do with the Taliban's reputation in terms of you know wanting people to keep a low profile uh, and not to uh, embarrass them. So it could be it could be any of those things. But as I said, the mortality thing is still an issue. Even if he's alive, uh, his state of health suggests that Al Qaeda need to be plan for what happens next. Now they have plans in place. It should have been uh, it should have been clear that his successor, uh, if he if he did. Uh, uh, relinquished the mantle for whatever reason uh would be abu muhammad al-masri uh, and of course uh, we do report in, uh, in the uh in the report that uh that, that abu muhammad al-masri uh did uh die in august
0: yeah just and just for just for our listeners sake we had, we had confirmed in the new york times have confirmed that that was an israeli operation at the behest of the cia you know Deep behind enemy lines uh, where Abu Muhammad al mazri was killed on August 7th, 1998, in assassination alongside his daughter, Miriam, who was the widow of Hamza bin Laden. Um, but yeah, to your point, he was, you know, as a result of this infighting in Syria, we detected a couple years ago that he was, Abu Muhammad al mazri was very high up the pecking order indeed. In fact, was probably the, now the number two to Zawahiri and in line to succeed him, probably followed by Saif al who was also mentioned in the report, uh, who was also in Iran. Um, you know, and we've, we've talked about that dynamic quite a bit on the podcast in the past. Um, but, you know, here's what's interesting. So you just said something that's very important, I think. I just want to underscore this for listeners is that Al-Qaeda is not stupid, right? I mean, they're going to have succession plans in place for Zawahiri in the, the case that he dies. The last succession plans that we know of are pre-2015, um, the last ones have been made public, I should say. And when I say we, I mean, he, us on the outside who aren't privy to all this sort of sensitive intelligence and sources. The last sort of documentation we have of a succession, a chain of succession for Al-Qaeda is pre-2015. we be foolish to assume that they haven't updated it since then and that they haven't updated it since Abu Muhammad al mazris demise in August and other factors. And the key thing here is, and this underscores the same sort of uncertainty we have about the way ISIS operates at times, we have the same thing about Al-Qaeda uh, we don't really know who's in the line of succession at any given moment. There could be people, or individuals who are veterans who nobody's thinking of who are in the top five now in terms of Al Qaeda's uh, chain succession. I was just wonder if you had any other thoughts on that and sort of how they operate. And I have one other follow on question on that, and then I'll turn over to Bill.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's no, it, I, and I think what you say is really important there, Tom. Um, Al Qaeda—they've been in this game for a long time. They—they they plan. Um, they've shown that they're resilient. They've shown that they're. Uh, Pretty smart, um, and of course, as, as we were saying earlier, they're very networked. You know, they're sort of networked around the world. Um, they, you know, you would have uh, you would have uh, very very senior Al Qaeda figures who were nowhere near the core zone, nowhere near Afghanistan. Um, exactly. And, and you know, you would have somebody like Droukdel, who of course was killed. Um, you know, who was uh, I think at the time of his death was 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 believed to be uh, fifth in the line of succession um you know the sort of the global number 5 uh, and so the an interesting question if he was still alive right would he would he still be you know somewhere in the sort of algeria sahel region um, or would he have been moved up somewhere else? Because you know, if if if, if you thought he was now number, let's say number three or something, um, you know, would would people be saying, well, actually, we need that we need this guy uh, somewhere where, he, well, where well, he could take over if he had to?
0: I got I got one comment for that for you. Uh, so those the line of succession we were talking about, those documents that were leaked out of Syria. Um, the way those documents explained it was that basically the guys in the line of succession for Al-Qaeda have to be present in either the Horasan, which is sort of a you know loosely mythological area around Afghanistan parts, and parts of the surrounding states, or embedded within one of Al-Qaeda's regional branches. So they basically say in those documents, which again are dated pre-2015 anyway at that point in time— Bill and I noticed it right away in the original Arabic that what they were saying was that you don't have to be located in Afghanistan or Pakistan technically to take over the mantle, you know? And that made a lot of sense if you think about the guys who have been in Yemen, for example. You know, you don't necessarily want to move some of the guys who are in that line of succession from Yemen and expose them. You know, maybe they could take over the mantle from there. But it's a very interesting thing that your point you're raising here about the fact that you have guys like Drukdel Dell and these branches who are in the line of succession. And, you know, this is sort of the the issue that we've long discussed on the podcast and in our writings and publicly in debates is that there's, in a lot of people's minds, there's this firm distinction between Al-Qaeda core, so-called, which is sort of geographically meant to refer to Al-Qaeda senior leadership in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and the so-called affiliates. And in reality, that line has been was blurred a long, long time ago, that basically you have guys who are, they're core Al-Qaeda members, core Al-Qaeda leaders, they're just way far away from Afghanistan and Pakistan.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting difference between Al-Qaeda and ISIL, isn't it? Because ISIL has got such a clear Iraqi DNA and such a clear sort of Iraqi-Syrian identity.
0: Good point. Um,
1: And and Al-Qaeda doesn't have that kind of uh, extremely specific central uh, identity. Um, And of course, you know, uh, we must come on to Africa uh, at some point during this conversation. But it's interesting, isn't it, that um, we mentioned Drupdell. Obviously, he was in Africa. Uh, Saif Al-Adil, of course, had previously lived in, in, in Africa as well, originally from Egypt, of course. Um, Osama bin Laden spent time in Sudan. Um, you've got one of the most successful al-Qaeda uh, franchises, uh, Al-Shabaab, active in Somalia uh, and, and in and the surrounding area. You've got another of the most successful and uh, evolutionary of franchises, Jainim, uh active in the Sahel and it, it does beg a really interesting question about whether 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 one might see whether one might see the actual al-qaeda top leadership uh, in Africa at some point but yeah as far as we can tell coming back to your earlier point Saif Aladl most likely is the guy who is sort of you know sort of warming up off just off the bench in case uh, in case a substitution is needed um and uh and, 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 of course, then the interesting question about, well, what, what happens to Saif if he does become the leader? Does he try to go to Afghanistan? Does he go somewhere else? Um, and then I think also we mustn't forget that there was that clear attempt to um, build up Hamza bin Laden before mm-hmm. he died as a future, you know, sort of a, a charismatic um, face of the organization quite possibly as a future leader although there's no suggestion that he was already in that pole position but you know he was nevertheless it looked as if Hamza bin Laden was being prepared to be a key al-Qaeda figure of the future. We simply don't know yeah. if there might be other people who are below the sort of you know because this, this, we, we, we're all very used to this older generation the Abu Mohammeds, the the Adels, uh, the uh, Issues and remis and whatnot, um, but of course, if if, if actually if they if they're trying to future-proof and if they're starting to look at people who uh, could take the organisation forward for ten or twenty years, uh, we might be surprised and find that it's actually somebody else.
0: Well, I you know just one what, I a quick thing, that I'll turn over to you. Sorry, I just this is all right in the line, it's a, right, right, perfectly in the line of questioning here. So, just on your point about the older generation, one of the things Bill and I have written up a couple times is from the Bin Laden files is this. Next generation of leaders, it was mentioned in the files Bin Laden was being kept abreast of. And one of them was identified as Rahman al-Maghrebi. Now, of course, on his way out the door, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made a big deal out of Maghrebi's presence in Iran because he is the general manager of al-Qaeda. Um, but Maghrebi's dossier or profile, I think, speaks to several of the threads that we've already discussed here. On, on The first thing, he's native Moroccan, so he's from Africa. He has roots there. Uh, the second thing is he's the son-in-law of Zawahiri, so he's got those familial ties. He's been the general manager of Al-Qaeda now for some years. You can find public reporting identifying him as such going back. And part of that job description, according to the State Department, is that he was in charge of basically as a traffic cop and overseeing communications across the so-called Al-Qaeda affiliates or regional branches. And a guy like that is a guy, you know, we're talking about Al kind Qaeda of senior leadership. A guy like that is, is someone who has not come up very often. And he, People like us know who he is. But when you talk about al-Qaeda senior leadership and how it operates and what they're doing, you know, he's not the first household name that comes to a lot of people's minds. You know, so everybody's fixated on Zawahiri or Saifalata or these other guys. And yet you have guys like this who are younger, who are part of that next generation of leadership has been re- groomed by al-Qaeda. You know, who knows how influential he is within the organization at this point? And who knows if there are other people like him who are sort of up-and-comers who can take over? And just just to underscore your point
1: yeah, I mean, I think the only thing I would add is is to say that you know we're conscious that because of this, what we describe as a sort of a period of heavy attrition at Al Qaeda leadership, um, this is something we really want to cover in detail um, over the next uh, four months before we write our next report. I think um, I think to uh, I think to you know there, there was a period when uh, when uh, the reports focused overwhelmingly on ISIL at uh, Al Qaeda's expense. And I think what I think we have, it's a much more mixed up picture these days, you know, both ISIL and al-Qaeda, they're both, they're both in a state of some flux and both remain uh, important and of concern. And then of course, you know, you've got significant uh, numbers of people who belong within this broad family of terrorism, but are actually more in the nature of just inspired by the general message. Uh, some of the stuff that happened in uh, Europe, as again, as we said in our report, some of that stuff was not particularly inspired by ISIL. Maybe it was in some cases, inspired by Al Qaeda, or or it was more more if you like more general, more, gen- more general sort of um, uh, theory type uh, extremism. Um, Edmund, on
2: Sayf al edo right? He's believed to be in Iran. Abu uh, Muhammad al-Masri, he was killed in Tehran. Um, Maghrebi, he's uh, also uh, supposed to be in Iran why um so i did notice the report there's no mention uh, of iran or al qaeda harboring there even secretary of state pompeo um you know gave a briefing on this not that it's anything new um the i did notice there was a lack of reporting on al qaeda harboring in iran is there an explanation for that was the pompeo's briefing too late or you know just sort of i the, i know the report covers a lot of items and it's easy for me to sit here and go oh you missed this or, you might have missed that um, but is there is there any reasoning that uh, you have for that
1: it's simply that we have no update bill so i mean we did report on this um a uh, years back yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, there's one previous report in particular that talked yeah. about um uh, al adle and abu Muhammad uh being in iran um and then with the exception of the confirmation that abu mohammed had been killed um we don't have any updates uh, we don't so we don't we don't have specific updated information about safe label. we don't have specific updated information about Almagrabi, and in terms of the uh, pompeo uh, announcement um yeah i mean uh, it, the two reasons why that uh, get into our report one is one is that it was too late because it was in january yeah, the timing I, uh, but sure. but, but, it, but it's not just that we would, would never we would never quote right and um, the state we would want member state confirmation on an official level uh, so you yeah, know, because again, it's, right. this is this is where this is where we have to be mindful of where we add value. Anyone yeah. can read what the Secretary of State says in public. No yeah. point in us retelling that. But if we can get official briefing that tell that says what's happening, uh, and we can then say, you know, member states have confirmed, but we of we haven't, haven't done that yet.
0: Yeah, just yeah. The, I'll I'll give you a little interference here for you on your behalf, Edmund. So I would say, on that. I, I said to people, I was involved in conversations about his speech you know, in, in Washington, and I said there needs to be official proclamation of the U.S. intelligence community on this. It can't just be coming from Secretary Pompeo. And I'll say this, that you you don't have to say it, I'll say it, least in case anybody's thinking it. Obviously, Pompeo is also a political actor in the United States who has his own sort of agenda, and you're not going to want to get entangled in, in that. I I wouldn't want to get entangled in that when doing intelligence analysis or, or uh, sort of getting into all this so so i get it but i think what's interesting is is that going forward you said you're going to evaluate um, al qaedas senior leadership i'm interested in what you guys come up with in terms of you know in terms of the actual facts of the intelligence on how you know how many guys that are senior leaders of al qaeda are in iran today versus elsewhere i mean they're in several different countries not just iran of course um, but guys like Maghrebi and how important they are and sort of how many of these guys there are still out there. You know, we talk about the report. Is, I thought your new report is very good in, in describing the leadership attrition Al Qaeda has suffered because it def- they definitely have. I think, you know, Bill and I have teased this out that the U.S. has made sort of a concerted effort over the last 12 to 18 months. The U.S. is tired of this game. And there was a big push within the Trump administration to sort of wrap it up to say, you know, we're going to get as many of these guys as we can. And then that's going to be it. We're going to we're basically declare Al Qaeda dead. And so, you know, when it comes to Zawahiri or some of these other guys, I think that they know that. And I think that's part that may be one of the reasons why they're laying low is that they don't want to pop up long enough to be you know, taken out on, on America's way out uh, in, some of the, in some of these theaters. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, going forward, as you guys look at this stuff, one, one of the things I always encourage American officials, for example, or anybody to do is, you know, on the American side, we haven't gotten a assessment of Al Qaeda and what its committees look like who's who within the committee structure, how that works. I think since 2004, you know, actually your reports that come out of your sanctions team is the really is the only regular item analysis that comes out of any official body of either one of these entities, ISIS or Al Qaeda. You know, there's very generalized stuff that comes out of the American side and elsewhere. There's not a lot of detailed stuff, which is why we always go through your report very carefully and read it line by line, because we're very interested to see what you guys are come up with, you know. Um, but that's what I would say. It's a long way, long-winded way of saying. As you guys move forward and you look at this, I'm very interested to find out what you guys find out about Al Qaeda's hierarchy, what it looks like today, who's who, how many of the original veterans are left, how many of these next-generation guys are now in the game are important. You know, I think that's a very interesting question to answer. You know,
1: There's a question, isn't there also, you know, do you, do you do they follow success? You know, do they sort of say, well, this is where we're doing particularly well, and this is what we want to reinforce? Or do, or do they sort of hold on to certain things as being iconic or sacred, you know, the sort of the Afghan connection is obviously very important for Al-Qaeda, uh, just as just as you know, we were saying that uh, ISIL is so very much an Iraqi-Syrian um, uh, uh, sort of entity. And, and it, it, again, just briefly, dipping back onto the ISIL side, it's interesting how dominated um, ISIL's propaganda has been by uh, military successes or also operations. That they've had in Africa, uh, particularly uh, the IS West Africa province recently, you know, which has continued to uh, to kill at an alarming rate. Um, and, um, and 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 then there's that sort of oddity from ISIL's point of view, which is, you know, ob- obviously they want that, they want the uh, they want the sort of the global notoriety. Um, but the question is, you know, to what, ex- to what extent are they able to maintain that they are fundamentally Iraqi and Syrian in their um, in their in their core um so it's a curious one and you feel that with ISIL, that they're more deliberately anchored in the original identity you sense with al-qaeda that it's it's more open to the opportunistic uh, movement according to where it works
2: oh and uh, yeah i concur Edmund. and just so you understand uh, or so the audience understands i ask questions like that because i'm a, it i i always find the in, it's interesting of member state in, into your report the omissions right what are what is how is how this report is built is interesting and we discussed that in depth in the in our previous episode and so you know uh when you're not getting this from I- official channels you would think the first thing that secretary pompeo would get the state department or get the cia to do when he's going to make a rollout like this is to brief organizations like the u.n sanctions committee and others to get you know if he, if it's an issue he wants to make um he should want to get by and it should be in your report and i and we I find that disturbing and that, that's what Tom and I had a major complaint about the the rollout of all that we don't doubt the information but the way it was pushed forward yeah just to be to just cause. to
0: be clear the complaint is on the American side so we think yes. America, the, the US government doesn't do a good enough job of communicating to people like you what is you know being known or what's in assessments and that sort of thing and that's that sort we 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 know a lot more about that speech and what could have been rolled out that wasn't that were are were letting on there are there's a lot more intelligence going on there and uh you know be that as it may we we think that all matters and it's all something to get into but what uh, uh, yeah, I, I I I
1: I get I get what you're saying um and I guess the only point I'd make is of course we don't generally speaking connect at that level in any government anyway right um sure. you know we we, we have excellent looking level briefings from from, from sure. the United States so, so sure. areas uh, U.S.
0: entities. Sure. sure. Yeah, no, and actually, I, I, I've noticed some, some similarities too in what you guys are saying, what the Treasury Department has said in some official assessments. So I assume you guys are ta- getting some some of the same briefings, we'll say, you know, and it's good stuff. So, Well, it, it, no, no
1: surprise to say that uh, the Treasury is obviously in the lead on sanctions and sure. have very, yeah. very important working relationships. Sure.
0: Yeah, I, actually, Bill, you want to ask about the Haqqani stuff with the... the well, the, you know? it, it,
2: more generally, it was on Afghanistan. Yeah, so... Uh, you, You note that the, I'm going to read a direct quote here from the report, it's a quote, member states report little evidence of significant changes in relations between Al Qaeda and the Taliban. And then Al Qaeda assesses that uh, its future in Afghanistan depends on its close ties to the Taliban as well as the success of Taliban military operations in the country. So in the previous report, Edmund, you guys noted that the Taliban was, while it was negotiating with the US, was um, directly talking with Al Qaeda, are you seeing any further communications at a high level between Al Qaeda and the Taliban? Um, and uh, I'm going to follow that up with a question um, on the opening, how you talk about the the peace uh, uh, effort as well. Yeah, we
1: don't we don't think that the picture has significantly changed, uh, at least not yet. Um, so uh, that sort of, you know, I think we made quite a big sort of splash about it. Um, last uh, report on Afghanistan uh, which was published around about the end of May um, and then also there was stuff on this in, in our report from the uh, from the summer, the one that was in July um, and um, what we've seen I think since then has been the Taliban just continuing not to want to really grasp this nettle because you know why should they if they're not being forced to um, and uh, my sense is that, you know, we're seeing just little indications of the Taliban sort of taking an inventory of the kind of, you know, issues they're going to have to deal with if uh, things move forward. I, I don't think, I don't think there's a you know, I, I think we have to acknowledge a very complex thing and, and it's part of the complexity, of course, is the complexity of the Taliban organization itself. The fact that it's, you know, it, it, it contains many, you know, it's a house with many different rooms. Um, and uh, you've got people in there who are, uh, who I think are pretty seriously um, looking for a, a sort of a hybrid of, you know, a successful peace process, but one which is heavily influenced by, you know, military success and therefore the Taliban get the best possible deal. And those people will be interested in making some limited concessions. Uh, in order to secure that best deal, but only when they have to. Um, And then they're also very aware that there are other people within the broad Taliban uh, sort of umbrella uh, who are hardline, uh, very much against uh, any kind of concession, very much against breaking with al-Qaeda, very much against uh, giving up on uh, you know, anything outside about the, the borders of Afghanistan, because they continue to be motivated by, to some degree, by international objectives. And I, I think it's no surprise that if you're trying to hold that sort of rather unruly house together, then you're going to want to make sure that you don't make the most painful and divisive compromises and, until you have to do so. Uh, and and so that's, that's what I would say is happening. I, I see a continuity of the Taliban giving reassurance to al-Qaeda, but I think there are also signs that, under the right pressure, the Taliban uh, would be willing or might be willing to uh, make some concessions on this. So, so this, this I think, is the interesting challenge in 2021. The question is, uh, is it? Uh, you know, is, are we going to see uh, the uh, the peace process move forward? Uh, in a way that uh, obliges the, the Taliban to uh, to make some serious uh, compromise. And so, the Taliban's official position, um, 11, eleven months
2: after signing the agreement with the, the Doha agreement with the US, is that Al Qaeda doesn't even exist in Afghanistan. How could we, you know, how how do we real? I mean, I I get it. That's their that's their public phase, but that's a pretty difficult position to walk back from. Are they going to all of a sudden admit, oh, OK, well, maybe there is Al-Qaeda here now and then we're going to go after them. But that being said, what type of pressure do you think that it would take for the Taliban to actually um, denounce, renounce Al-Qaeda, go after Al-Qaeda, rid the country of Al-Qaeda?
1: I mean, I, you know, I should say I'm not deep in the... Sure, in I understand this. that. I mean, I you know, I take an interest in the peace process, obviously, and I talk to people who are involved in it, but, but you know, in the end, the, sort of the the the... the you know the, the the deep magic of peacemaking is is a, a heck of an. I mean, I've been involved in that in previous career, but uh, but uh, I'm sort of seeing it as a spectator at the moment, really. Um, and you know whether it's possible for people to you know arrange for things uh, for the Taliban to do things that they don't publicly acknowledge, but which are which are verifiable. That's possible too, you know. I mean, these processes move forward in various different ways, and I, 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 think there, I think there is some scope there, even with this, say absurd denial that the Taliban keeps making. You know, there's no Al Qaeda here. There's no foreign fighters. We don't need foreign fighters. We don't need foreigners at all. Right. Um, you know, all of this is nonsense, and of course, we call them on this, and you do as well. And it's important to call them on this because you know they, they have to be reminded that that if they if they if they put out false statements, it undermines people's Confidence in their reliability as negotiating partners or as partners for peace. Um, so, I mean, the Taliban, to some degree, I think, needs to grow up if it wants to, uh, if it wants to be involved in a successful peace process. But you know, changing tack on these things or saying that there are unauthorized foreigners that have come to there—there are all sorts of ways they could do that without actually saying, "Yes, of course, we were lying all along." Um, so, I, I don't, I don't regard that as an impossible position to come back from. In terms of the pressure, I think it has to be about um, just being very clear uh, with the Taliban that, 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 that when they say things that are not true, that the international community will not accept them and will uh, will, will call, call them out.
2: I mean, I, I just go back to, and I don't want to make this a debate about the Taliban and the peace process, but I just happen to believe that the Taliban aren't sincere about it, and that's why we're going down this road. But um, And I'll leave, Tom, do you have any other questions with the...
0: A couple of things on that. Al-Qaeda, I mean, well, actually, yeah. it's interesting. One of the observations in the report that confirms one of the things you guys confirmed that we were looking into, too, and I think, Bill, you may be in a report on this, is that, um, you know, the head of uh, the original head of Al Qaeda, the Indian subcontinent, Asim Mar, was killed in September 2019 in a Taliban stronghold in Helmand. And one of the prisoners mm-hmm. the Taliban got out, basically, from uh, Afghan custody was Seema Mar's wife. So on the one hand, you know, the Taliban is claiming, oh, you know, Al-Qaeda isn't here. On the other hand, they're negotiating for freedom for the wives of senior Al-Qaeda leaders who were killed or captured in Afghanistan. Oh,
2: she's, and I believe she's Pakistani as well,
0: right? I think that's right. But the point is that there's all sorts of you know examples like this in your reporting, our reporting, basic facts of what's going on um you know which is which calls into question again as bill said i you know if you listen to us you know we're jaded about all this we think the whole thing is you know basically <laughs> we don't think it's going anywhere we don't think the taliban's going to live up to any of this at any point in time but but yes i'm
1: sort of curious about that so so let me just say on that i mean i I absolutely hear what you're saying and I and and, and I, I don't think I've ever accused the Taliban of sincerity that, that, that would be really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, sure. <laughs> really beyond, the, beyond the pale, I think. But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but the question is, is there, are there, what, what, you, what you get with these pro- processes is you get a situation where it's in the interests of both sides to move forward and sometimes it's more in the interest of one side than the other and then that will only work if the, the, the side that is more in their interests uh, also have, have you know, a little bit more muscle that they can bring to bear. Uh, it's, it's, it's a complicated process. It can take forever, uh, and, 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 you know, or, or, or it can suddenly succeed after five years or suddenly succeed after eight years or something like that. I think the one thing I would say is that the, where the Taliban has, I think, an interest in the peace process is in the fact that I don't believe they can win by military force. So I, I think the Taliban are not as strong as they are sometimes, they, they like to claim to be. And of course, sometimes we, as you know, observers, we're all uh, we, we're all sort of kind of pessimists by profession almost. Sure. And we 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 we, we sort of see these problems, you know, and all attention to these problems as we should. Um, the Taliban is very very good at contesting base, but if the Taliban were in a situation, they claim, oh hey, you know, we could just take this country over in three months if we really tried. I don't believe that. Uh, well, I believe that, that I, I believe the Taliban can contest a lot of space but I believe that as soon as they try to impose control on the entire uh, the whole of Afghanistan I don't think they can do that and that, therefore I think there are people within the Taliban who would like some kind of negotiated move, to move back into power
0: I would add this one caveat or one provision to that because uh, I agree with a lot of that but I would say this they can't take over the country as long as the US and NATO forces are there and the the problem is that the February 29th Doha deal said the U.S. is out, which means NATO forces are likely out by May 2021. And so the pressure then, that the, what you realize the American side did is, you're talking about trying to pressure the Taliban into making concessions and to living up to their counterterrorism assurances and this and that. We've been very critical of the American side, the American negotiating strategy, if there is being called a strategy, because all the pressure you're talking about putting on them, the American side's already negotiated away. The American side already said we're out. Uh, you know, and basically that's it. And now now the, President Biden is going to have to determine whether or not he wants to leave 2,500 American troops in Afghanistan with NATO uh, allies, or uh, if he wants to pull the plug in May 2021, as called for in the Doha agreement, which then means the Taliban and its allies, including al-Qaeda, then start attacking American and NATO forces again more, more wholeheartedly. Uh, so it, it leaves them in a very bad situation, I would say, for policymakers in Afghanistan, uh, which is part of the reason why Bill and I have been critical about this, is that if you are going to commit to the processes you're saying and trying to get the Taliban to make concessions, the American side, the way they played their hand, so to speak, didn't make any sense for doing that, you know. And that that's sort of how we come at it, you know. And, and one of the things in your guys' reporting in the UN uh, monitoring team reports that we find interesting, by the way, all of our sources agree with too, uh, which is which is a very interesting thing. We we pointed to your report on this a couple of months ago, and it's it's fascinating, which is that the Hakani's, which are an integral part of the Taliban have been discussing with senior al-Qaeda leadership standing up a new army or a new fighting force in Afghanistan. Some of our sources have referred to that as basically that's that's intended to be the first army of the new Islamic emirate, the newly resurrected Islamic emirate in parts of Afghanistan, which is interesting. Uh haven't gotten that part confirmed, but it, everybody's confirmed to us that the Haqqanis have been deeply in talks with al-Qaeda about standing up this new entity. Just curious if you had any war on the Khanis and all this, and, and sort of that's, that, that's the big thorny issue. One of the biggest thorny issues in all of this and dealing with the Taliban is that the Khanis, you know, incubated Al-Qaeda, the deeply, closely alive with Al-Qaeda to this day. And I, part of the reason we don't, Bill and I don't see this coming to, to work is we don't see Siraj Akhani, who's the warlord of the Taliban, we don't see him breaking with Al-Qaeda anytime soon.
1: Yeah, I mean... It- Nothing very much new to add to that. Uh, you know, as you know, we covered a lot in our previous yeah. reports, including the 1988
0: report. And we, I would highly recommend readers go back to those because those, those reports, we put a lot, those report, that reporting is solid. We know it's solid. And it was you guys were the first to really bring attention to that. And we had a lot of people come to us afterwards and say, yeah, these
1: guys are right. So, um, The only things I would add, I guess, from the sort of the very latest report is really just the confirmation that uh Al remain in the lead with Al Qaeda. That still you know that relationship is still, still solid. Um and um and also of course, you know, the, the reminder that uhqanis have the they have the latitude to uh to uh play uh, you know to do to do things which 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 the Taliban wishes to remain deniable. Um and so you know you have this complex relationship uh, where the Taliban is uh, is a, a military opponent of ISIL Khorasan, and yet we uh, have seen evidence of, uh, of uh, between the Makhani network in ISIL Khorasan.
0: I've got two, I got two other quick questions. You got anything else, Bill? Yeah, I got one
2: quick question on the um, movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. You note, uh, the reunification. This is kind of a geeky thing, but well,
0: this uh, is one of my two, so we're good. So we're okay, good. So take that down to one, go this, so so that
2: down yeah. to one. then I'll, yeah. that'll that'll then I could get Mozambique in because I really want to squeeze that in real quick. Um, so uh, I know that, you know, Jamatul Lahar and the the um the the Masood group in South Waziristan and others uh, had um, the, Tal- the movement of Taliban in Pakistan issued a statement proclaiming that the Taliban has been completely reunified. Yet, um, I want to say it was about three or four years earlier, maybe maybe five at this point. Um, I remember the same exact reporting, um, it was same statements from the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. I don't know if you recall that, Edmund, but is, is there did something happen in the interim where the group broke apart, or is this just because of... Uh, uh Norwali Massoud took over and they they reaffirmed allegiance do you know do you do
1: you know why that could be I, I think essentially there was a there was a splintering you know sort of rivalry fragmentation uh, you know how fully realized that was or indeed how fully realized the sort of the re the re-knitting uh, together is um I think this these are still things that we're studying work in progress but, but certainly we've been we've been given to understand that there has been a significant move Towards reconciling those past rivalries, and uh, and that, that may also have played through into, uh, into the group becoming more effective, more operationally active. So I think you know something that we thought was worth reporting, but I, I would consider it we still want to
2: learn more about. Yeah, and I noticed you said several hundred uh, t- cross-border attacks. I'm assuming that's in Afghanistan, correct? And um, you said somewhere up to upwards of six thousand TTP fighters as well. Is that correct?
1: Uh, the, yeah, the, the and the, num- the numbers we again that goes back to previous reporting as well. But we uh, were talking something yeah. in the region of, something in the region of six thousand.
0: Bill, I thought you were going to get to the punchline, Bill. The punchline was that Al Qaeda is the one that brought them all back together. Well, yeah, exactly, I mean, <laughs> and that's in the report. We we yeah. that is that's something we've also got. You know, again, you guys are on top of it because that's something we've been tracking as well, been following all the way through Mattia Rahman's role and all of this going back in, in time in terms of bringing back the reconstituting the Pakistani Taliban and the new leadership is seems to be more unifying than the old leadership. The old leader seems to have been you know quite ineffectual. Um, but I've got, you know, one of the things I think, I, one of the reasons we like talking to you, Edmund, is that, um, and again, we're here with Edmund Fitton-Brown from the UN uh, Security Council uh, monitoring team. He covers the sanctions regime basically for the UN when it comes to ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and they issue these regular reports, and he's been gracious with his time again for us on the podcast and talking about this stuff. And one of the reasons why we love having him on is because he's a savvy consumer of the intelligence reporting and the analysis that comes on about these groups, and he... He knows, and he'll he'll explain to you, as, as we do, that you know when it comes to intelligence, a lot of times you're dealing with uncertainty, you're dealing with vagaries, it's the nature of the game, and when it comes to clandestine organizations like that, like that we're dealing with here, it's very much the nature of the game. There's a lot of inside baseball that's tough to get a handle on. And so let me ask you, with, with all that preface in mind, let me ask you about one thing in the report that is the one area of uncertainty in all this, we're, and, and, and we know it got some attention on CNN and elsewhere, uh, rightfully so. But I was just gonna, just want to pick your brain a little bit on this. We saw this too. There was reporting that Khalid Batarfi, was head of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. By the way, a guy that I've speculated could be in the line of succession someday for Al Qaeda too, given his profile uh, going back in time. Uh, but there's some reporting that he was in fact captured last year. Um, this is this is uh, we we're we're still uncertain about this. I and mean, I just was give you opportunity to sort of weigh in on this part of the reporting and what you guys know about it or don't know about it or how you're investigating it.
1: Yeah. I'm, so, um, uh, yeah, very fair question, Tom. And as you say, this is something that was being talked about uh, late last year, um, and then uh, we, we we were satisfied that we had briefings worth reporting to to, to confirm that he had been uh, that he had been arrested. And as you know, there was there was there were other disruptions taking place as well, uh, including a it's very significant killing in that same operation. But. Um, I think what I would say about this is, uh, we saw it as important to report this because Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula obviously has got a high profile amongst Al-Qaeda affiliates. You could even argue that it has the highest of all um, outside uh, outside Afghanistan. Um, That's uh, the threat that it used to pose uh, to, particularly to civil aviation, uh, was something that gave it uh, an extraordinary profile globally. Uh, people talk, talk to Yemen to, through those sort of uh, terrorist uh, goggles for a long time, um, and then they 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 suffered a series of blows. As you as you know, uh, they they lost they lost leaders. Uh, they also lost the master bomb maker of Uh early last year. Of course, they lost Remy, who was the previous uh, the previous uh, leader, and, uh, and then possibly, as I say. We've been given to understand that after only, after only about eight nine months, he uh, may now be uh, may now be. Uh, uh, um, so it seemed important to say because, bear in mind also Al Qaeda. I think this is one for the future as well. Qaeda and uh, ISIL are, are, are at loggerheads, violent loggerheads in many places. Um, this is the uh, case in a whole whole a whole series of, of uh, places where both where they both have affiliates. Uh, and it's even true in the Sahel now where that uh, understanding that briefly existed between JNIM and ISGS broke down. Um, and it's interesting to see whether they are actually undermining each other, making each other less effective. Uh, and it's particularly striking in Yemen where they've been uh, violent in violent conflict now for, for years. Um, and they're also both, of course, caught up in... Degree in the Yemen- Yemeni civil war. There is, a, there is obviously a violent conflict between the Houthis and Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, you periodically hear allegations made about uh, whether ISIL is ambivalent about that. But you've got a sort of a complex, multi sided conflict uh, in which both ISIL and Al Qaeda are, are uh, suffering attrition. And Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has been significantly weakened by this. Uh, so we, we just st- it struck us as being a, an important point to report. Um, but we don't have any further detail of it, and we'll be continuing to follow it.
0: No, fair enough. I mean, as listeners' podcast know, listen, we've known Bill and I have known there's something funky going on with AQAP for a while. So we're not, we haven't been able quite to put our fingers on exactly what's going on. It's clearly the leadership attrition has had an effect on them. Um, now they still have senior, you know, Al Qaeda leaders and veterans to take over and to run the ship for them. Guys we've profiled before, but as you know. Uh, One of the things that taking out leaders does is sometimes the the replacement isn't as capable as the guy who's taken out. Sometimes they're more capable, you know, which is an unfortunate side effect of all this or or unfortunate uh, part of the dynamic. But we know there's something funky going on with an AQAP. They've had disruptions on the media side. They've had leadership attrition. They've had the infighting with ISIS. It's very tough for me as an outsider to get a full handle on what's going on. So I just I, I noted in, in in seeing you guys had report on this, that you got a briefing on it that Patarfi had been captured. That's very interesting. We're obviously going to continue following it as you are too to figure out what what exactly is going on with the AQAP leadership these days, because um, it does seem to be something worth keeping tabs on, especially since AQAP had played such a prominent leadership role within the Al Qaeda global network for a time, um, and I'm sure that there are some guys in AQAP who still do at a minimum. So, uh, Bill, do you have any other questions for Edmond?
2: I do one last question on Al Qaeda um, in uh, Mozambique, particularly. And by the way, this report is if you want to read what's happening in West Africa and, and Central Africa, particularly with the Islamic State and Al Qaeda are doing in these areas, it's it's a fascinating read. It's a, it's a great synopsis of the uh, state of play. But um, so the Islamic State in Mozambique, though, it controls a port and has for some time. And I'm going to, you know, I'd i, I, I like to direct quote you here. It says, um, the report says, ISCAP, which is Islamic State Central Africa province, captured and continues to hold the port of uh, Simboa da Priya. Uh, I hope I'm reading that properly. Despite a sustained military offensive from government forces. So Edmund, do you have any, any indication why the government has been able to dislodge uh, the Islamic State from this port? It's been several months now. Is that that's correct, right? That it's been under Islamic State control.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I I don't I don't want to make any kind of uh, comment on member state governments or you know sort of terrorist activity by member states. Um, But uh, the fact is that uh, that that is let's say ISCAP, um, IS Central Africa Province, just it's good shorthand. Um, ISCAP has grown stronger. Uh, that's, uh, that's a clear trend that's identified in the report. Um, it's, uh, they've, had, uh, they've had some successes also, as you know, in the DRC. Uh, it's a rather odd um, region, this, for uh, ISIL, because um, you know, if you look at the map, it's not the most obvious grouping of Somalia with, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, Mozambique and uh, the DRC. Um, those three are quite a long way apart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's sort of, you know, it's just, it, it probably uh, reflects the significance of uh, Somalia as a, sort of, as mm. a center of, uh, of, uh, of violentism. Um The fact that ISIL in Somalia, maybe not all that strong as a fighting force in Somalia, but nevertheless right. very well embedded as well, and therefore sort of being the, the hub of this sort of, uh, this, this, this Africa region. Um, what we saw uh, in DRC, I think most notably, was that remarkable jailbreak. Um, very, very troubling because, because of the release of huge numbers of uh, the, um, from prison. Uh, and that's that's that, that's a worry. But you're right, I think, to focus in on Mozambique. The, the bigger worry Partly because Mozambique is more strategically located; it's on the Indian Ocean, uh, it's it's more the outside world. Um, also, of course, because uh, we've had this interesting, uh, interesting development in the reporting period, where we've seen uh, its cap actually uh, mounting cross-border operations into southern Tanzania. Um, so all of these things put together, yeah, they they give they give they give considerable cause for concern now. You know, we all know that there are pre-existing uh, rebel groups, extremist groups in these areas of Mozambique and, uh, and uh, DRC. Um, and again, this is a subject of uh, it's a subject you know for, for continued monitoring of the the extent to which the, as a, an entity has fleshed out the extent to which they that there is uh, sort of a fully integrated, or is it a more complicated you know, Sort of various, various uh, extremists and rebels and and cap as well. Um, so again, I don't want to say that we're painting something a picture here that is fully developed. It's not a it's a it's a work in progress. But if we were flagging a trend that is of particular concern, certainly uh, what has happened uh, in within the broad area uh, is one of the main ones from the last six months.
0: Thank you, Edwin. No, oh, very good. No, I I just leave you on this one thought. When I read the reporting about what ISIS is doing now, as you as you mentioned, sort of the lack of territorial contiguous, uh, you know, it's not continuous territory here that you're talking about that they're operating across in, in Africa. Um, what's interesting to me is it looks to me like, and I, this is a, a hypothesis to look at, um, that maybe some of these networks grew out of the Shabab days because Shabab had the same sort of pattern. Where Shabab was reaching out to different areas and coordinating the activities, parts of Shabab were in Mozambique and elsewhere. And it's striking that ISIS seems to be following maybe some of the same some of the same muscle memory in the network. I would say maybe maybe that's one thing to look at. I would say, but you know, it's a hypothesis. Yeah, it's
1: an interesting point. Yeah, and I mean, of course, as you as you well know, it's often the case that the ISIL uh, people yep. who have who al Qaeda
0: affiliates. Well, that's all I've got. You got anything else, Bill? That's all. No, thank you again for joining us, Edmund. It's always a pleasure. So we had, uh, once again, Edmund Fitton-Brown is our guest this week. He is the coordinator for the UN Security Council's Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team. He and his team regularly put out reports on Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the global networks. They're must-read reports. You should go out and, and take a look at them. Uh, we appreciate you coming on, Edmund. Thanks again, and we hope to have you on again soon. Oh, well, Bill,
1: huge pleasure. Always great. Always great to see you, and I look forward to the next one.
0: Thank you. Sir. Great. Anytime. Thanks again, Emin. and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to. Ep- I guess this is what episode forty-three. Is that what I said earlier, Bill? Wow, it is episode forty-three. All right, we're working our way toward fifty. We'll have some uh, good for fifty. Um, but thank you to our listeners for tuning in again this week to this episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And as some of my colleagues would say, if you can hit us up with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that, again, there's some magical algorithm that tells listeners to come check us out. So please do that and counter any of the trolls. If you can go out and give us a five-star review, that'd be awesome. And we will see you, hopefully, next week.